The following is audio from The Refuge Church. Every sermon is an invitation to understand, obey, and enjoy God. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.us. Jesus, we uh, want to thank you because your mercies are new every morning. And great is your faithfulness. Despite our wrongdoings and our shortcomings, your arms are open wide for us. And you invite us to come to you to confess our sins because you are faithful and just and will forgive us. And so we've messed up almost every day. And so we come to you this morning confessing and asking for your forgiveness. And thank you that when you forgive, you remember our sins no more. Transform our hearts, renew our minds. And as we offer our praises and look into your word uh, this morning, we pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit to convict our hearts to talk to us, to change us for the better. Thank you for this, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good morning, Refuge Church. There are many of you, and that's a weak response. Good morning, Refuge Church. Thank you. I need that energy so I can step up, you know. So if you guys are sleeping, then... Well, I'm excited to uh, continue our series with you guys uh, this morning, uh, Talking to God. And our intro for this series has been, Lord, teach us to pray. This request from Jesus' disciples not only reveals their personal desire, but offers a lasting impression of Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus' life, the perfect life, was a praying life. The intimacy and understanding between Jesus and the Father is available to every person who desires to know God today. Lord, teach us how to pray. The title of our sermon this morning is called Prayers for Beginners. And our main scripture uh, this morning is in 1 Samuel chapter 3. And so, here is a question before we dig into our passage. Has any of you ever fantasized about God speaking to you? You're like, God, I just want to hear your voice. I don't know what to do. Just talk to me. Any of you? Do you think that's a good idea? Do you really want God to talk to you? Like, it sounds great, right? It's like, it's God. Just tell me what to do. Just show me where to go. Things will be easy. But when he talks, is it usually about things that we want to hear? And so I asked myself that question, and my answer was no. Like, I don't want God talking to me. Because he has talked to me once, and I got burned. And I was like, I'm good. I'm just going to be me. And if it's not your way, you're going to change it, but don't tell me what to do. And I have a personal story that I haven't shared with 
a lot of people, but I'm happy to share it with my church family. Uh, I was going to Olympic College, uh, getting my two-year degree so I can move on. And it was my last year, and it was in August of uh, 2011. And usually every Saturday, you know, I'm a huge soccer, football fan, you know, and I will watch the morning games, you know, always watch my team, Manchester United, playing. And I was in my room that morning watching the game, and no one was home except me. And then I heard a voice, and the voice said, I want you to become a pastor. And the atmosphere in the room completely changed. Like I just felt something overwhelm me that I couldn't explain. But also, and I cannot tell you today if it was an audible voice or it was just a voice in my heart, but it was very clear what I heard that morning. I opened the door and I checked the stairs because me and my host dad, we usually mess around and prank each other and do crazy stuff like that. And so I was thinking, my host dad is doing something to me. Went upstairs, no one was home. Came back, continued watching my game. And then I heard that voice in my heart this time saying, I want you to become a pastor. And I just broke down and started crying. And the reason was, I remember when I was born, one of the elders at my church in Nigeria, gave my mom a Bible and said, this boy will become a pastor someday. And so I remember that story. And I was like, this is the last thing I want. I, I, was, I wanted to go to law school. From a young age, I knew I wanted to go to law school, become a liar, and make a lot of money. Sorry, become a lawyer and make a lot of money. That was what I wanted. And then at this time, God knew I was getting ready to transfer and pursue my education. And he was like putting a curveball towards all my plans. I didn't like that. And that's why I said, I don't like God speaking to me. Because whenever he does, it's about something monumental that alters my reality. So I'm not comfortable with that. I didn't know what to do with that message. My host family came back. I talked to my host dad. And he said, Ibro, let's fast and pray. Call my mom back in Nigeria. And she said the same. We fasted and prayed because I wanted to know what it meant. Because I wasn't ready to change my plans just because I heard someone telling me to become a pastor. Fasted and prayed. And then I went and talked to my pastor. And I told him, and he said, I don't know what to tell you, Ibrahim. You have two options, obey or keep challenging God. Because obviously, I think he's the one calling you uh, to do this. I chose the second option. I'm like, if you really want me to do this, you will talk to me again. And he did at summer camp. I was leading the high school uh, program at Island Lake Camp. And as a coordinator, I was uh, also charged with, uh, you know, creating a Bible study curriculum and leading the whole program. And one of the camp directors towards the end of the summer called me into his office and said, Ibrahim, what are your plans? 
I said, plans after camp? He was like, yeah. I was like, well, I have a job in Montana, and right after camp, I'm going to go there and take the job. And he said, you should become a pastor. <laughs> I was like, you got to be kidding me. It's like, why? Because I was leading a Bible study? Anyone can do that. And he said, because you have a gift for it. And I said, ah, thank you, but that's not what I want to hear. I took the job in Montana, and I was there for a year and a half, and just something just wasn't right. But at the same time, I wasn't ready to give in. So I came back to Washington after a year and a half working in Montana. And then I was like, you know, I'm just going to look at a few seminaries. And I hope they all say no to me. I applied to Fuller Seminary, and I got accepted. And what was even cool was they offered me their presidential scholarship, which meant 80% of my tuition was going to be paid for. And so I just had to figure out the other 20% and my living and other expenses. I was like, God, you did this. That is not cool. And then I decided to make up excuses. I'm like, who wants to move to California? You get sunshine every day. I mean, I'm going to miss the rain. I have friends in Washington. Blah. I'm like, I'm not ready to go. So I deferred uh, my admission for one more year. And while I did that, I applied to Whitworth uh, in Spokane. I was like, yeah, it's close by. I can manage that. I applied and I got accepted. And at that point, I was like, okay, I'm just going to be faithful. I'm going to go to school and see what happens. And so that's what I did. Went to Whitworth. I got my graduate degree in theology. But while I was going to Whitworth, I became a contractor. So that's what I do uh, full time. I'm a builder. And after I was done with my degree, I'm like, I don't want to find a job. I'm happy with building houses. I love it. That's what I'm going to do. And I've even had a few uh, churches uh, around ask me to become a youth pastor, and I have turned them down because I am still waiting to hear from God. But also, I have a fear of what that means because I don't feel like I'm ready. And in the story that we're looking at this morning, we'll be talking about Samuel, who wasn't ready to hear about God. And here was God showing up and giving him a huge message, which altered his reality. And I'm going to read uh, the chapter for us, and you can follow along with me. So 1 Samuel chapter 3, starting in verse 1. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. But Eli said, I did not call you. Go back and lie down. So he went and laid down. Again the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call you. Go back and lie down. Seven. 
Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel a third time, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling as the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. And at that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I will judge his family forever because of the sins he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. 15. Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. But Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, Here I am. What was it he said to you, Eli asked. Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of his word fall to the ground, and all Israel from Dan to Bathsheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word, and Samuel's word came to all Israel. Isn't that a powerful passage? And so the last time I preached, I talked about who Samuel was. Remember in chapter 1, there was a man named Elkanah. He had two wives, Hannah and Penina. Hannah was barren. But every year they would go to uh, Jerusalem to offer their sacrifice to God. And Hannah wanted a child, and so she prayed to God. And she made a vow that if God blessed her with a son, that she will offer him to the Lord. God answered her prayers. He blessed her with a son. She named him Samuel. And after she waned Samuel, she took him to the altar like she promised. And so Samuel, from a very young age, has been serving God in the sanctuary. And so this is the same Samuel. And so the Jewish, uh, the Jewish uh, historian Josephus tells us that at this point in the story, Samuel is probably 13 years old. And so imagine a 13 years old getting this revelation from God. And so in verse 1, it says, In those days the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. And so time has passed since a faithful man of God came to Eli and told him what will happen with his family if his sons didn't repent. And you can find that in 1 Samuel chapter 2. 
but nothing has changed except that prophecy seems to have become increasingly rare. God wasn't talking to people back then as much as he probably did before or he did now. But that was all about to change. In verse 2, it said, Eli was becoming weak that he could rarely see. And he was laying down in his bed. And then the Lamb of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was laying down in the house of the Lord where the Ark of the Covenant was. And so Eli is getting really old at this point in the story. He is also going blind. He has gone to sleep that night off in the main sanctuary. But Samuel, as the assistant, sleeps in the sanctuary proper close to the Ark of the Covenant, where the Ten Commandments were kept, and also the Ark of the Covenant was God's dwelling place. And so in front of the Ark was the Lamb of God. In Exodus chapter 30, verse 8, the eternal light was lit at sunset. There was a light that was supposed to be on the whole time, and Samuel's job was to keep that light on the whole time and also replenish the oil to keep burning that light. And also, he, Samuel was responsible for shutting down the sanctuary at night and reopening the doors in the morning. And in the pre-dawn silence, he hears himself called. Verse 4, Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And then what does he do? He ran to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I did not call you. Go back and lie down. So he went and laid down. And verse 6, again the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call you. Go back and lie down. The picture of Samuel time after time mistaking the call of God for a summon by Eli is explained with these words in verse 7. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And so we understand this to mean that having never previously encountered God's presence, he did not know what to do. And so what did he do? He interpreted the new in the light of past experiences. Because to have a spiritual encounter with God is something beyond his comprehension. So once and then again, he wakes up the old man only to be sent back to his place. Because why would God show himself to Samuel when Eli the priest was still there? And then in verse 8, a third time, the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. And so the patience of Eli is astonishing. How many of us, being awakened three times in one night, will not lose our temper? Thanks for telling the truth. And more, not only keep our tempers, but be sufficiently concerned to ask ourselves what is moving the boy to keep waking up at night. 
I love my sleep. I just need to rest. And I have a seven-month-old. And whenever Isaac is up too many times at night, I get upset because I don't have the patience. I'm like, go to sleep. I need my rest. So I will have lost it if I was Eli. But Eli had the wisdom. Yet for all his old age and blindness, Eli had the insight of love and real concern for Samuel. So what does he do in verse 9? So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. 10. The Lord came and stood there, calling as the other time, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. And then God gave Samuel one of the most radical revelation ever. Verse 11, then the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. Do you really want to hear from God? Do you want to hear about something that will make your ear tingle? I don't think so. And at that time, verse 12, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke about his family from beginning to end, 13. For I told him that I will judge his family forever because of the sins he knew about, 14. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Wow. Can you even consider what a shock this first revelation must have been to Samuel? I mean, Eli is his father. Eli raised him. And Eli may not have even known the curse. And now Samuel must deliver this message to his adopted father. I mean, Samuel will later become a prophet, but he learned early on with his first prophecy that the prophet not only receives the word of God, but also one who has the courage to deliver it. It did not take much for Samuel to realize that prophecy was a joke. But there is a further item to consider. The message probably does not fully register with Samuel. Because religious people have a clear tendency to focus on rituals. They mistakenly think that if you do the rituals and do them right, it will cover all your sins. This is as true today as it was back then. Attend services, pray, give your tithes and offering, and you have squared off your account with God. There are some people who think that. But prophecy's central message is that God demands moral living, not rituals. Rituals have religious validity only to the extent that it mirrors a moral life. Rituals can never take the place or compensate for immorality. This message became the all-consuming passion of the prophet. And one example of that is from Isaiah uh, chapter 1, verse 11 uh, to 17, if we uh, have that passage. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11 through 17. 
And this is what Isaiah says. Isaiah chapter 1, 11 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the Lord of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my court? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayers, I will hide my eyes from you, even if you offer many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead to the cause of the widows. God does not delight in rituals. He delights in righteous living. And this is the message that Samuel must deliver. The sin is the indulgence of moral corruption, a sin that neither sacrifice nor offering will expiate forever. That is what God said. No amount of sacrifice or offering will make me forgive what Eli's sons have done. But back then, sacrifices and burnt offerings were the main rituals of that age. Eli the high priest might have hoped that enough sacrifices will square off things with God. In much the same way, somebody today might try to compensate for his or her moral lapses by rigorously keeping rules and meticulously praying three times a day. But Samuel has been directed to deny this misconception. Rituals can never take the place of ethical living. Right cannot atone for ethical sins. Only a total transformation of one's life for the better can do that. These things Eli's sons were unwilling to do, and now it is too late for them. The day of judgment has come. And you may be wondering, what were Eli's son doing to make God this angry, so angry that God said, I don't care what sacrifices they bring, I will not forgive them. My judgment will come upon them. How can you mess up this bad to put God in this position? When we learn that from 1 Samuel chapter 2. Verse 12 to 17. The sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant will come with a tree-pronged fork in his hands while the meat was being boiled and will plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron of pot. 
Whatever the fork brought up, the priest will take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant will come and say to the person who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said, sorry, I think this is the wrong. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 11. 11 to 17? Oh, it's all right. Let the, fat, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want. The servant will answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I will take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Verse 17, thank you. Sorry, I thought I was uh, reading uh, something else. And so, let, let me explain what was happening. To readers in the biblical age, the passage that we had just read will have made sense to them, but since we don't live in that, uh, in that context, let me explain what was going on. So, only on special circumstances was the whole sacrifice burned on the altar. In most cases, only a small portion was burned. Most of the animal was consumed as a communion meal uh, before the Lord. But the priest who performed the ritual was not a salaried employee. Priests were supported by getting a cut of each animal sacrifice, specifically the breast and the right thigh. The breast was to be divided among all the priests that were serving God in the temple. And then the right tie was for the priest who was officiating that sacrifice. But furthermore, the sequence of events was prescribed. First, the burning of the fat, kidneys, and the liver lobe on the altar. And only then the distribution of the portions, that is, God is served first, and then the priest second after the sacrifice is done. And so considering these actions, the sons of Eli's, the sons of Eli abused what was going on. They burst all the legislated boundaries, limiting, refusing to limit themselves to their prescribed share. And adding insults to injury, they insisted on serving themselves first before they served God. This indeed is the crux of the matter. Men dedicated to the service of God are using the office to better themselves. In all ages, it is unfortunately true that many people dedicated to the calling of service become self-serving. To some extent, we can even expect that of certain people, politicians. We vote them in power, they tell us all the things that we want to hear, they make promises, but when they get into power, we know that the power will corrupt them and the things that they promise to do for us, they don't end up doing that. And so we expect that with them. But when it comes to the guardians of our religion fattening themselves in the name of God, one can empathize with the fury of the author of the book of Ecclesiastes when he cries, and moreover, I saw under the sun, in the place of justice, there was wickedness. Yeah, in the place of righteousness, wickedness was there. That was Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16. 
And that is one reason I do not want to become a pastor, because I don't want that burden. But things do not stop there for the son of Eli. We also learn that the son of Eli used the opportunities of their office to lay with the women that served at the tent of meetings. The tent of meetings was the place that God met his people. That was where God talked with his people and the women who were serving at the door of the tent of meeting. The two sons of Eli were sleeping with them. And so my question is, why do intelligent and well-educated persons, like the sons of Eli were, they were priests, they knew the law. Why do such people act in in ways so debasing to themselves and to their calling? Why do pastors and elders and leaders in the church who know the Lord, who have served in ministry for a long time, what is it that happens for them to forget all of that and become self-serving? What happened to Eli's son? The author starts by defining them as base men and explains their debasement by observing that they knew not the Lord. To us, knowledge is a matter of intellect, but this is not the biblical view. The knowledge of the Lord is a central biblical concept, and the prophet Jeremiah gives one of the best definitions in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 22. To 23. This is what he says. Say, this is what the Lord declares. Dead bodies will lie and dunk on the open field like cut grain behind a reaper and no one to gather them. This is what the Lord said. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. And so knowing the Lord has nothing to do with intelligence or intellectual attainment. Knowing the Lord, says the prophet Isaiah, is a question of values. It is a matter of loving, giving kindness, justice, and righteousness. Knowing the Lord means far more than the intellectual ordering of values. It means acting upon them. It implies a way of life of loving kindness towards one fellow, Treating one another justly and making honest and fair place to all people regardless of social class. Knowing the Lord does not mean believing correctly, but acting correctly. I'm going to say that again. Knowing the Lord does not mean believing correctly, but acting correctly. You can have all the PhD in Bible studies and all the knowledge in the world. But if you are not living correctly towards all the things that you know, you don't know the Lord. This was what was going on with Eli's sons. And that was why God said, I've had it. I'm done. They don't know me anymore, and there's no turning back. This was the message that Samuel was supposed to give Eli. 
And then in verse 15, we see Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. But he was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Then in verse 16, but Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, here I am, 17. What was it he said to you, Eli asked. Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it so severely if you hide anything from me. Tell me what he told you. Verse 18, so Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. Eli knew what was going on. He was the high priest. And all the reports from his sons came to him as the high priest. But instead of putting his foot down after he learns of the things his sons were doing, he tries to reason with them. And you can read that in 1 Samuel chapter 2 for yourself. But also, we need to remember that Eli is not only their father, but as high priest, he was their boss. Because sometimes we might have pity on our kids because they belong to us, but he was also their boss. He has the responsibility, both as father and as boss, to act and rectify the situation. Instead of setting behavioral, uh, behavioral norms and enforcing them, he took the easy path of indulgence. And so as a father, Eli is judged a total failure because he neither had the courage nor the conviction to discipline his children. And no wonder God holds him responsible for that. I mean, he spoke to his children. He tried to reason with them, but they didn't listen. And that was where it stopped. And now that God is fed up and ready to judge his son, Eli's response was, he is God. Let him do what is good in his eyes. Now, when I read that, I didn't know how to take that. I'm like, is that a righteous response? Is that a passive response? He is God. Let him do what he pleases. I mean, at this point, we know that God is fed up. But wouldn't you at least try? Even if God does not listen? Eli didn't do that. And the judgment was coming on his sons. And then to end, verse 19, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up and let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground, 20. And all Israel from Dan to Bathsheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. The Lord continued to appear to Samuel. Remember in verse 1, it was rare for God to show up, and now it's Samuel, because Samuel was different from Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons. The Lord continued to appear, and he turned Samuel into a mighty prophet in Israel, because Samuel was faithful. Samuel knew God not just here, but also here. And so in closing, what are we to do with this passage? I have four things that I wrote down. 
And the first is, God still speaks. And are you willing to listen? Are you ready to listen? I'm still in a place where I don't know if I'm ready to listen. But he hasn't stopped pursuing me. Are you willing to listen when he talks to you? And are you ready to give the message that he gives you, no matter how hard or difficult, or no matter how hard it may be towards the position that it's going to put you, are you willing to send that message forth when God speaks to you? The second point I have is, as a parent, parent your children. I'm a new father. Isaac is only seven months. But I've all, always heard from some wise people, you are not just friends to your children. You are their parents. And I think from a young age, Eli didn't do a good job of parenting his children. As I was reading this, I was like, I wish Eli's children were raised up by my mama. I mean, they all have been different people. I mean, I've shared with you, you know, I, I had so much whooping growing up that I questioned if my parents were my parents. I was like, do you even love me? I mean, I got spanked for doing nothing, right? You know, in the morning before I went to school, I would say good morning to my dad, and I will say I'm living, and my dad will take his belt, and he will spank me. And I said, what did I do? And I was like, you didn't do anything, but when you go to school, you do something, and I wouldn't be there to discipline you. So this is a deposit. That was me. And because I was the first son of my parent, right, if I did something wrong in school, I got spanked in school. And when I came home, my mom would spank me and my dad would spank me just because I was their first son. But I wouldn't listen. I thought I was going to wear them down, but they wore me down finally. <laughs> they wore me down. But for Eli, his sons wore him down. And as a parent, we cannot do that. He tried to reason with them. You know, the first time when I came to the U.S. and my host sister did something, and my host mom was like, go to timeout and think about what you did. It's like, what's that? It's like, yeah, when they do something wrong, they go to a corner, and that's your punishment. It's like, what? I called my mom. I said, white people give their kids time out. And my mom's like, that's why they're white people. We don't. I mean, any Vern and any sisters here, did you guys get any time outs? Oh, yeah. Just, and I'm not saying don't give your kids time out. I'm not telling you how to raise your kids. But sometimes time out just doesn't do it. My mom's favorite verse was, Spare the rod and spoil the child. And she was always ready with me. And I don't know if I turned out to be the man she was hoping for me to be, but I was better than I was back then. And so reasoning without children sometimes just doesn't work. And that's why we have to parent. We have to make the hard decisions. The third point is knowing God intellectually is not enough. Know God and live it. Knowing God intellectually is not enough. Know God and live it. It doesn't matter if you show up here every Sunday, give your tithes and offering, 
you're the most loving person to your neighbor. But as long as you don't act what you hear every Sunday here, it is not enough. And that's why in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, should we go on sinning just because we have grace? Should you go on sinning because Jesus paid the price for you? And you're like, oh, he died for my sins. I'm good to go. No. When Christ died, he buried our sins on the cross. Therefore, since our sins are buried, we are supposed to live a righteous life. And so don't go on sinning. Know God and act it. And then lastly, do not wait until it is too late. I don't know if there's anyone here who hasn't accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but don't wait until it is too late. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Jesus is speaking. Jesus is saying, I died on the cross for you. You couldn't pay it. I did it for you. All you have to do is accept and believe in me, and I will make you new again. That is a wonderful message. And thank God for the gospel. And that's why we are here. And so for anyone who is like, I don't need God. It's not for me. You do. And the day of salvation is today. And I pray right here that God will convict your heart so that you will see a need for God. Because you don't want to wait until it is too late. And so open your heart to God. Invite him in. Allow him to come and transform you. And I promise you, he will do that. He did that to me. Even though I grew up in a Christian home, I knew it. But now I'm knowing it every day here. I'm being constantly renewed by the blood of Jesus. I haven't gotten there yet, and none of us here will say that. But we are being sanctified every day. And for anyone here who hasn't accepted Jesus, you can be sanctified like that too. You just have to open your heart and accept that call and say, Lord, I've messed up. I'm not good enough on my own. I want to put my trust in you. Come and change my heart. Live with me. And God will do that for you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. And we just pray that your word that went out this morning will not come back empty. We pray for whoever is here today who hasn't given their life to you, Lord. We just pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to their heart right now. Jesus, we don't want to wait until it is too late like Eli's sons. Jesus, thank you that your gift is there for anyone right now to receive. We just have to open our hearts and invite you in. And so I pray for the brother and sister here who hasn't accepted Jesus. I pray that you open up your heart to see their need for you and to make that decision to follow you. And thank you that it is the best decision that we will ever make in our life.
Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your grace. That is so sufficient for us. Thank you, Lord. We are undeserving people. And yet we are rich. We are rich because of you. Thank you for this we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this morning we will take communion. And communion is one of the rituals that we do as believers. But it is a ritual that is supposed to help us remember what Christ did on the cross for our sins. You were bought at a price. And so we take communion every Sunday to remember. And Paul said in Corinthians, examine your heart before you take communion. And so I invite you to do the same. Pray. If you have any sins to confess, confess it right now before you take communion. Uh, Joe Berg and Rachel are at the back, and you can uh, take communion. And on the night that he was about to go down on the cross, he took the cup and blessed it and said, This is my blood that I will shed for you on the cross. And he took the bread and broke it and said, This is my body that will be broken for you. When you eat this, remember me, remember my cross. And so I invite you this morning uh, to go take communion as the singing group uh, sings.